So we're in the the second book of Timothy. We're building a church that serves. And I don't think I've ever seen a sermon series bear quite so much fruit quite so fast as this one. Think back just a week, this time last week, the Steelers had a mere 4% chance of making the playoffs. No one thought that the, the Colts would lose and the Jags would win and the Steelers would score in the dying minutes of overtime. And then on top of that, that for no apparent reason, the Chargers would call a timeout on themselves and prevent themselves from going through. But it happened. And so in desperation, we created this this beautiful new sermon graphic in Pittsburgh, black and gold, for good luck. And it worked. I got a message from Coach Tomlin this week saying, well done, Christchurch, you did it. Now, I made that up. But we like to boast, don't we? Even if it means the pastor claiming superstition from the pulpit. We like to boast. We like to let people know that we are a success. And we did it. And uh, if we've done okay rather than very well, we like to gild the lily and make out that maybe we were a bit better than we really were. And if someone else is doing well, we like to associate with them and, and try and get some of the glory that they have and share in it as well, because everyone loves a winner. So the question this morning, what if you lose? What if you feel like a loser? In this part of the letter, Paul just examines, I think, some of the things that might hold you back from wanting to serve. And last week it was all about fear. This week it's all about shame. Is shame, is the risk of being ashamed holding you back? What if I serve and things go wrong and I look bad? Will I not feel ashamed? Well, Paul begins in verse 8, and you may wish uh, to see this in front of you. Uh, It is Paul's style that sometimes uh, is sort of quite circular, what he says. Uh, One Greek scholar says that verses 8 through 12, 120 words in Greek is just one sentence. So uh, it's like a a string with all the threads wrapped around each other. And uh, it's, I think it's just a very elaborate, uh, spirit-inspired prank on preachers. But uh, you may want to have scripture open. We're in verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed, there's no need for shame, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Paul's style is to repeat a point and and weave it into another point and mix things up a little bit to unravel somewhat, I think, what he's saying there are two main things that might cause you shame. And the first is getting something wrong in church. You come and you serve in the church, you get it wrong, you feel ashamed. The second, ironically, is getting something right in church. You come and you serve in church, and the minute you do, you paint a target on your back. You become a source of attack. You may well suffer as a result. So the theme is shame, and the twin ideas around shame are shame in the church when you serve and you get things wrong, and shame in the town when you serve and you get things right. Both of those things can make you not want to do it. So let's start with the church first, and let's get one thing clear. 
you are called to serve and not because you are any good. It is not because you have some peculiar holiness or some unique skill that God wants you to serve. There are, in fact, Paul says, no works which qualify you to serve. In verse 9 he says, this is not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This week, the apologist John Lennox said in an interview with J. John, the essence of works is that you hope you've done enough and that when you get to judgment, God will accept you for what you did. But Christianity turns that on its head and gives us grace. Grace is the unique idea that, that God has given you something that you did not deserve and that he has called you up into something that you did not earn. It is because of grace, of course, that you never need to feel ashamed when things go wrong. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, we may have confidence and not shrink from the Father in shame. There's no shame. So if there's no shame before God himself, God is a perfect judge who knows everything about you, not just the good but the bad as well. He knows not just how it went, but he also knows what was motivating you when it went. If there's no shame before God when you get things wrong, then there could not possibly be any shame before fellow believers either. That would be absurd. Even if you get something very wrong, there's no shame. When we relaunch the reading team, if you come and you read and you get a passage like this one and you get half the names wrong, Ben got them right, there's no shame. If you come and you are a server and you knock over the chalice that now has red wine in it instead of white, and it makes a terrible mess all over the fair linen cloth. There is no shame. Surely in the history of the church, someone's done that. It's going to be me. Uh, if you become the, the, uh, the treasurer and you get all the numbers wrong, there is no shame. If you have a moral failing of some kind, there is no shame. There is always grace. That's the point of the good news. I remember uh, the very first Bible study I ever led. Uh, it, I spent all week long reading up and preparing for this. I bought commentaries and uh, articles that I read, taking notes, you know, constantly preparing. There were pages and pages of scrawl and you know, chicken scratch and highlightings and things stapled together. The more I read, the more confused I became. Uh, and then it came time for the study, and the study was awful. It went on way too long. I tied everyone up in knots. We got absolutely nowhere. By the end of the evening that was very late and very long indeed, the whole group was far more confused than when they came in. In fact, actually, there was no confusion until I started. And uh, at the end of it, the pastor's wife, who'd had enough, kind of cut the evening short, and she said to me, did you prepare? I said, yes, that's all I did. That's all I did all week long. In, in my first sermon, I made a boy throw up. That's a long story. At seminary, I was voted pastor most likely to lose his job through saying something dumb. <laughs> what, what a nasty award. I think Jenna won the preaching award. I got that. I mean, what a horrible thing. Verse 9 continues. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, before you were even born, before the world was even formed, God was on a mission to give you grace. Before you did a thing, before you were even a thing, God was coming to give you grace. And now he has. He's arrived. He's done it. Paul says he's manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's telling us that an event occurred in the timeline of soteriology, the salvation timeline. God did a thing. And when he did a thing, the thing that he did transformed shame into glory. A moment occurred which changed the way the world works. That, of course, we know was the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where verse 10 tells us he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Just this morning, I felt led to dig into the word abolished. I thought that it could be cool. I think it is. Uh, abolished, I discovered, it means to be cumbered or weighed down. Imagine lead weights uh, like a diving suit. Uh, it means to be brought to naught and put away. The word abolished, I found out this morning, is in fact derived from the word for unemployed. So you can imagine, uh, you know, death standing there by the cross with his hood and his creepy stick kind of cackling, you know, the skull under the, the hood. And, uh, you know, God saying to him, I'm, I'm sorry, death, we're going to have to let you go. <laughs> you know, up goes the hood and the stick, okay. <laughs> and he's on the breadline. He's been sacked. He's been fired. He's been let go. Jesus Christ messed with death. Mocked him. Abolished him. Put him away. And what is left to fear? That was last week, if death has lost his job. And what is left to be ashamed about this week? If Christ has been shamed for you. Christ on the cross suffered the worst shame of all. And prove to us that he loves us enough by his grace to take it on. To, to be judged for us and to be sentenced to death for us and to be shamed for us and to be killed for us so that we might now get rid of all of that and take on a new life, one that does not end, but that indeed is without shame before God and is eternal. I want you to know this. In the coming weeks, if you decide to serve in the church, when you get it wrong, there will be no shame. And to bring shame into the church is blasphemy. To make someone feel ashamed is to deny the power of the cross of Christ. And so if you've made someone feel ashamed, and you now feel ashamed that you made someone feel ashamed, I think the message is don't be ashamed. Give yourself some of the grace that Christ gives to you. Point number one. In the midst of Paul's tangled skein, there is no shame in church. Right. Point number two. Of course, you still have to live in this world. You're still a person, and you still have to go about your business. And so, okay, there's no shame in the church, but Paul now turns to the world, and he says, what if I feel ashamed amongst my peers? What if I feel ashamed at work or in the town? What if... Uh, the world makes me feel ashamed. And so addressing shame before God, saying there is no such thing, next he addresses shame in the town. What if I serve in the church and it goes rather well? 
And people find out, and they don't like it. They don't like what I stand for. They don't like what I preach. They don't like what I do. And as a result, I suffer attack for serving in the church. Well, Paul goes on to talk about this now. And uh, he begins again by saying, you will. It is a command, verse 8, to share in suffering for the gospel. In other words, if you stand up to look like Christ and to serve like Christ, you will likely be treated like Christ as well. In verse 15, he says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Hyperbole, perhaps. I highly doubt that the largest continent on the risk board turned away from Paul entirely, but he felt alone. Uh, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Uh, may the Lord grant mercy, at least, I added that, to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Just one person he calls out who was not ashamed, inferring, of course, everyone else was. The authorities were afraid of the gospel. They were threatened by it. They felt ashamed by the message of grace. I think it injured their pride, this notion that they might need to be saved. And as Paul shares the gospel, he starts to lay hold, a claim to things that were precious to them, to their money, to their comfort, to their status, all of those things. And so they do away with him. They lock Paul up. The chains of which he speaks at this point in the letter are the chains of jail. He is in prison for the gospel. And as Paul is in prison, shut up and put out of the way for the things he proclaims, he writes this letter. And some of his friends are running away. Uh, you know that day after the big win? You want to wear a Steelers shirt, don't you? you? You see a lot more black and gold the day after a big win. If you suffer a really humiliating loss, one where you lose to the worst team in the NFL, uh, you just don't see the, the shirts the next day. It, it doesn't look so good, does it? Paul, through his work, has found himself in chains. And the brand is tainted, and people are starting to put away the shirt. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be associated with this guy today. It doesn't look so good. And so he suffers, I think, on top of the loss of liberty, the loss of his friends. He suffers on top of the shame of the jail, the shame of his friends backing away from him. I would argue that as a culture, as a society, we are headed in that direction again. I think we have become a culture where it is increasingly easy to be cancelled for what we believe. And uh, as technology abounds, our kids could be found out for reading the wrong kind of book, liking the wrong kind of page, and coming to the wrong kind of a place. They will be bullied. They will be exposed by a vocal few and made to feel ashamed. This weekend, as I preach into that thing there on the wall, on the other side of the lens, somewhere in a data shed in Arizona, a supercomputer is dictating live every single word that I say and putting it up as subtitles with a two-second delay uh, on, on the internet. What happens when someone gives to that thing the instruction that there are certain words I'm not allowed to say anymore? Then what? What happens then? If you serve Christ, someone is going to find out. Some of your friends 
may become ashamed of you. They may turn away. One day, the authorities may come for you, and then more of your friends may turn away. Paul reminds himself, therefore, in verse 11, how he got there. How did I get into this mess? Did did I bring this on myself? Is it my fault? Paul says in verse 11, no. I was appointed. I didn't choose this. I didn't earn it. It was a gift. This was God's gift in me, uh, which, verse 12, he says, is why I suffer as I do. The only reason I'm suffering is because God called me to this job, and it brings with it some risks. And so, reflecting on the reason why he's in chains, he says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. In God's bizarre economy, Paul's suffering actually enhances his faith. Rather than backing off and becoming riddled with doubt, actually he kind of grows in his confidence in the good news through the suffering that he suffers. When disaster strikes, the secondary matters go away. When something horrific happens to you, a loss that you've not suffered before, so many things that felt important just kind of find themselves dropping down the order a little bit. That file at work, the big case, you know, paying off that debt just now and what people think of you and what you're going to do next and where you're going to go, it just, it just seems so footling and, and stupid when you suffer and things go wrong. Suffering, if you suffer long enough, ends up boiling down everything to the one thing that matters. And, uh, it can even take away your shame. Suffering can take away your shame if you suffer enough. Why? Why would I say that? Why would Paul say that? Why would something as horrific as suffering in front of people actually take away your shame. My friend Thomas has a testimony, and uh, we don't have a screen in church, but we have the next best thing, which is the internet. And I've posted Thomas's testimony on the Christchurch Fox Chapel Friends and Family page, and you can see that if you've not seen it already, and hear it for yourself. Thomas uh, was in my previous church, and uh, he suffers from a form of, of muscular dystrophy, which is a a rare, progressive, muscle-wasting condition. Thomas is in pain all the time. He's in pain especially at night. And as the condition has progressed uh, from sort of age 10 through to where he is now in his mid-20s, slowly he's lost more and more and more uh, of his ability to move his body. He's in a chair, and uh, he has his hands, and he can speak. To make uh, matters considerably worse, Thomas comes from a family of artisans. This family is brilliant. Um, they they cross-breed plants. They catalogue butterflies. Uh, the family business, they, they make harps. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a harp. It's actually not very easy. And uh, like them, Thomas, of course, he's, he's inherited all of this. He's, he's creatively brilliant. He is, is a botanist. He's a photographer. He's a craftsman, he is a composer, he wrote the, own classical, the classical score to his own testimony. Uh, beautiful, uh, he is a Renaissance man. And, and Thomas loses the use of his body. 
My friend Gary says, you know, he remembers when, when Thomas, aged 10, was running around the church garden with all the other 10-year-olds. And then you see Thomas, you know, go from sitting to a walker to a chair. And um, as a result, of course, Thomas has had a huge amount of time to reflect on suffering. And uh, some of the things we've talked about are, are confidential, but much of it is public. He's had a lot of time to reflect on suffering and on shame and on missing out. And this is what Thomas says. God doesn't look at our physical appearance. That doesn't govern his way of thinking about us. He looks at our hearts and he goes much deeper. But he also cares very much about how we are because he suffers and he goes through things with us. My friend's comprehension of the cross of Christ has increased because of suffering, because of his chains. Thomas finds that the more he suffers, the more he identifies with Christ. He finds, therefore, that the more he suffers and the more he pushes into this experience of Jesus Christ, the more able he is to serve in the church. Thomas leads the worship in his church. He sings when his voice is strong. Likewise, Paul says, verse 12, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced. See how that faith is dialed up in jail? I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so he rounds out this little sense unit by giving to his protege, Timothy, the same charge that he gives to all of us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God, he says, has entrusted all of us with this calling to serve, so, so guard it. Do not allow your shame to prevent you from serving in the church. Shame in the church that you've got something wrong. I've stained the Lord's table with my sin. Shame in the streets that you've got something right and your friends have run away from you. If you do that, if you allow shame to nudge you into passivity, you have left something precious that God entrusted to you exposed. And it can be plundered, it can be robbed, it can be taken away, and it can spoil. So do not be afraid, he says in week one. Do not be ashamed this week. But hear the calling and respond. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you uh, for Paul and Timothy and Thomas. And thank you, God, for servants in this church. God, thank you so much for those who are, are weak enough and broken enough uh, to be confident. And, and thank you, God, uh, for the sheer joy of your forgiveness when we stuff things up. I love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Amen.